This is JU Israel Teachers Lounge, where we reach out to current Gap Year students, alumni, and any interested listeners, keeping you connected to what's happening in Israel and giving you insight behind the headlines. Okay, I am your host, senior JU Israel educator Michael Unterberg, and today joined by JU Israel program manager, Rena. How's it going, Rena Levin? Good, good to be here. We haven't heard from you in a while. Yes. It's, have returned. It's good to have you back with your radio voice. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Matt and Alan are, oh, I guess uh, Matt's teaching class mm-hmm. and Alan's on assignment in Poland once again. So I guess we'll hear a little bit about that when he comes back. But today we have a very special guest, Rabbi Hashi Friedman, who doesn't usually like to go by Rabbi. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks. Okay. So before I ask you what you do, if you could please uh, tell us what Hashi stands for. Hashi stands for Chaim Shmuel. Mm. My grandfather, may he rest in peace, uh, used to call me Chashala, and it sort of stuck. So by the time I was in eighth grade, so Chaim turned to Hashi. Gotcha. All right. And it was always very problematic for our non-Jewish teachers in elementary and high school. Making the Chas sound? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my daughter, Avigail, one of of her English teachers, because it was a Jewish school, was always like... She said, it's okay, I can say Avichail. My daughter was like, that's not my name. She's like, no, 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 I get it, but I can do it. I've been practicing. So that was awkward. So tell us what you do at Okay, I'm the director of education for Nativ. Nativ is the Israel uh, government organization which works with converts who are thinking of converting. Uh, We are the uh, organization which is sponsored by the uh, prime minister's office. We work in conjunction with the Jewish agency and with what's called Agafa Giyur, the uh, conversion department of the government. And uh, we are an organization that was established in the very late 90s with the arrival of the great Soviet Aliyah. So when uh, about almost one million Olim came to Israel in the 1990s from the former Soviet Union, Russia, Ukraine, Moldova, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, all these places. Which culturally are very different. Absolutely. The former Soviet if, Union if you is a whole... call a Russian, whole... Ukrainian, Ukrainian, Russian, yeah. you're, you're in trouble. Yeah. Just look at the wars going on in Eastern Ukraine <laughs> now, right? Yeah. And we've actually had some of our ex-soldiers who have volunteered for both sides. Um, anyway, That's creepy. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they're looking for action. Right. And uh, uh, so we were established in the late 1990s, and Nativ was established in order to provide some type of assistance for those roughly three to 400,000 of these olim, and now we're talking about second or even third generation, who are classified halachically, according to Jewish law, as non-Jewish. For the according to Orthodox reason, Jewish According law. to Orthodox Jewish law, uh, which is uh, something that uh, they find very, very difficult, to say the least. Uh, you're talking about uh, people who came to this country, who were encouraged to come to this country, uh, who are uh, who, many of them whose fathers are Jewish, mothers are not. Uh, in the former Soviet Union, if your father was Jewish, you were called a Zid. And if your father wasn't Jewish, you weren't. So I'll give you an example of a kid I met w- way back when. You could have experienced anti-Semitism as a Zid. Well, that's the yeah. following story. So Michal is a soldier I met years ago who grew up in a Ukrainian village with a Jewish father and a non-Jewish mother. And uh, in that village, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. And in actuality, it was the so-called non-Jewish mother who walked around with the Magen David, with the Star mm. of David, 
who made sure everybody kept the holidays and who defended the kids from anti-Semites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One day someone comes along and says, time to make Aliyah, you know, with Perestroika, Gorbachev, all that stuff, so they can get out, and said, come to Israel, come home, because under the law of return, Anybody who has at least one Jewish grandparent who would have been killed by Hitler is automatically allowed to come to Israel and become a citizen automatically. They're right defined, away. their nationality is defined as a Jew enough for the law of return that citizenship exactly, is waiting for them. Exactly, exactly. Now, as you said before, uh, in Israel's strange uh, tug of war between democracy and Judaism, so although Israel is essentially a democracy, the laws of personal status, like marriage and divorce and things like that, are determined by the Orthodox rabbinate. And that's a deal that was uh, hatched way back when by Ben-Gurion himself, meaning that in order to get married to another Jew in the state of Israel today, you have to be classified a Jew according to Orthodox law. So if your mother is not is not Jewish and your father is, you are considered non-Jewish. So what you have is hundreds of thousands of people, especially those who are growing up in the country, who feel very much a part of the Jewish people. Their last name can be Leibovitch or Cohen or all kinds of things like that. Their grandfather might have been in the Holocaust. All these things. And um, they are suddenly told at a certain point, sometimes the parents tell them when they're kids, sometimes they only find out when you go to the army, sometimes they find out later. Actually, you're not part of the, the club. So Michael gets off the pl- the stairs of the plane, come, you know, lands in Ben Gurion Airport. Metaphorically speaking, they say, oh, welcome home, Michael. Little because problem the government here. has legally treated him as a Jewish national. Correct, under the law of return. Right. Welcome home, but sorry to tell you, you're actually not part of the family because your mother's not Jewish. He says, what are you talking about? My father's Jewish. I'm a Jew. I've always been a Jew. We suffer from anti-Semitism. We, we tried our best to keep your Jewish identity, despite all the challenges of communism then and uh, assimilation and everything that happened, the Holocaust, and pogroms, and all that stuff. Right? And so they said, but you know what, Michal? If you're already here, although we treat you as a second-class citizen, how about fighting for us and defending us <laughs> by joining the army? And then, you know what? If, God forbid, something happens to you, we won't even bury you with us in our own cemetery. How does that feel? Now, is he obligated to go He's obligated army? to go to the army, of course, absolutely. As an Israeli citizen. Absolutely. He's part of the—it's like 5% of Israeli citizens— Aren't Jewish and are Put it this also way, not. If you're Arab. talking about uh, three or four hundred thousand out of a population of eight million, let's say nine million almost now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's exactly five percent, but it's a very large percentage, and uh, it's a problem which is not going away. Now, um, it's like that joke, not a joke. It's yeah. not very funny, but that like Hitler was more from than you know the Israeli government that he would consider him this this guy Jewish right. by right. those standards, but the Israeli government, right. you know. Well, right. but that's it. The Israeli government, right. in terms of citizenship, brings him in as a member mm-hmm. of the Jewish nation, but, but the rabbinate, keeps... in terms of marriage, right. won't include him. Right. right. I so guess that it's more could the be, rabbinate, yeah. Yeah. So even in terms of, even before you get to the army, like in high school, I picture, I mean, there must be thousands of kid in his, kids in Israeli high school who, like, Maybe they, maybe the Jewish family wouldn't want them to date him or her because. Well, the classic situation is if I'm a a kid who grew up with all my friends in Israel, and um, uh, all my friends are considered halakhically Jewish, and I want to go out with a girl, and I'm not considered halakhically Jewish, though I've done everything with them, I grew up with them, I played right. with them, I studied with them, uh, so very often they're non-religious, either traditional or 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 secular parents who say, you know what. Adkan, up to here. You're not going out with him because he's not Jewish. We don't want that, right? And uh, what you have is a situation which borders on the absurd because I'm Jewish enough to be in the country. I'm Jewish enough to fight for the country. I'm not a Druze or a Bedouin or a Muslim or a Christian 
basically I Which see had, myself as Jewish. Why do you make that distinction? Is it because like the Druze community is a community? I make where... that distinction because the Druze do not consider themselves part of the Jewish people, even though they support the Jewish people and support the state of Israel. They have their but, own community. Correct. But someone who grows up in Ashdod or Netanya and they go to school in, in, in an environment which is completely Jewish, right? And they see themselves a part of it with, you know, and some of them even have bar They want to feel part of the community. They do feel part of the community, and then they are extremely offended if someone tells them you're actually not part of the community. Now, in the late 1990s, as soon as all these hundreds of thousands of people arrived, along with the other olim, so all of a sudden conversion became a very big issue in Israel for the very first time. Until then, you had an occasional basketball player who, who would do conversion, <laughs> and a few famous cases like Brother Dan, but it wasn't really something that Israelis mm-hmm. were dealing with. All of a sudden, conversion became big, at which point you had the— well, Also, uh, driving became a big issue in the, driving, when, when the former right, Soviet Union right. came, but that's a different— <laughs> Right. And uh, so all of a sudden, the two forces, what we call the immovable force and the unstoppable object, um, start to go at each other. In other words, the whole Jewish diaspora came to the prime minister at the time and said, okay, listen— Conversion is a big deal. You have to have conversion according to different denominations, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, because you're a democracy. And Bibi said to them, Bibi Netanyahu was the prime minister at the time, also said, Prime, no problem, you're right. Then the rabbinate, the Orthodox rabbinate, Rabbinut Israel, came to Bibi and said, listen, you're going to have a lot of conversion. It has to be Orthodox, just like it's always been Orthodox, and we don't accept anything else. And if you don't do it that way, there's going to be division amongst the people, and no one's going to recognize this, that, the other. Bibi said, you're right. No, Very of rabbinic of him to right, say exactly. both sides are right. <laughs> exactly. And of course, this was sent to a committee called the Ne'eman Committee. Uh, in that uh, committee, you had representatives of Orthodox, Reformed, Conservative uh, denominations. They came up with a plan or a compromise. When you say the word compromise, it means no one's going to be happy. Exactly. Well, yeah. Right. So the compromise was that official conversion in the state of Israel, meaning you will be recognized in order to get married to another Jew, will be orthodox. But the education itself will be very open and pluralistic, right? And in the education itself, there'll be a place for all the denominations, at which point it was uh, decided to create what's called Nativ, which is where I work. Nativ started in... Which means path. Correct, path. Um, and Natif started first with lots of civilian classes for civilians. And around 2001, the uh, then head of the Education Corps, uh, Elazar Stern. Um, the Education Corps of? Of, of the IDF, yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, he was at a swearing-in ceremony. And at swearing-in ceremonies in the IDF, so every soldier gets a Tanakh, a Bible, that's pressed into his chest. And he saw that there are a number of soldiers who were asking for the New Testament. Mm. And he came up to them after the uh, ceremony and said, why are you asking for the New Testament? And so they said to him, again, metaphorically, if you don't accept us, we won't accept you. Mm. At which point it was decided to establish a conversion program in the IDF itself, right? Which is what's called, that's the most famous aspect of Nativ, right? The Nativ conversion course in the IDF. However, this course was opened, as many of our other courses in the civilian, in the civilian sector were open, not especially or only as a conversion course, but as, as a way to reconnect to your own heritage. Mm-hmm. So people were invited to come and study, and amongst those who came to study, about 35 to 40% would eventually end up doing the actual Orthodox conversion. And that's what you have today. Today you have about uh, 100 to 120 civilian classes across the country where people mm. study for a year, twice, uh, once or twice uh, a week. Uh, and you had that from Naharia until Elat. Until and then in the IDF, you have uh, courses all over the country where soldiers come to a basic native course, which is about Judaism and Zionism and identity, and they do a lot of touring around. They study very intensively from morning till night, and um, 
I have a lot of informal activities. They do Shabbat together with families. And at the end of this course, they can decide to go on to two more conversion seminars, which are more specifically oriented to conversion itself, right? And so these seminars, are, you have the basic course of about six weeks. Then after that, they can go to a conversion seminar of about three weeks long. And then a little later on, they can go to the last and final conversion course, which would be called the second seminar, at the end of that, by which time they've started to try and practice things practically and not just study. Uh, they are ready to get a date for the conversion court, the Beitin, and those who want will come to the Beitin, the conversion court, and they will be tested by three conversion rabbis, um, Dayanim, judges, and if they pass, then the judges tell them, you know, welcome back to the Jewish people, uh, please say Shema Israel and accept the mitzvot. After that, they are sent to the mikvah, where they, they immerse in the mikvah, at which point they are halakhli Jewish, after that, they have to go get what's a tudat hamara, an official certificate of a conversion, without which they cannot go to the interior ministry and register as mm -hmm. Jews, so that they can get married to another Jew. Right, and now, for men, there's also circumcision or some. Some of them similar, have to do circumcision. Yeah. Uh, all of them would have to do what's called hatafadam, a mm -hmm. slight drop of blood. Obviously, for the men, not for the women. And uh, what you have here is a process which can take usually about a year plus minus. It's a process which is fraught with a tremendous amount of pain and challenge and anger. And what we do in Nativ, both in the civilian and in the uh, army sectors of Nativ, uh, and what I'm responsible for as director of education is try and create an environment where the education is very different from what they thought it would be. We don't brainwash. We raise questions. We teach. We let them understand that studying Judaism is not just about studying laws. It's about studying history. It's about studying things in a way which is not only intellectual, that's very important, but also emotional. We make sure to try and have fun when they do it. We have lots of activities, and uh, slowly but surely, we start to break down stereotypes. So we hope that by the end of the basic native course in the IDF, they have uh, broken down some of their stereotypes and they say, you know what, there's some interesting stuff here. Many of them will go on to convert and many of them will decide this is not for me right now. At a certain point, they start to understand that for me to convert, in other words, for me to be accepted by you, I have to be Orthodox. For many of them, that's not what they want to do. Mm -hmm. not, most of them don't wake up in the morning and say, I want to be an Orthodox Jew. Most Jews up. don't. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Most people born Jewish exactly. don't want to be Orthodox. Bingo, right? So um, they want to be like the rest of their friends who are considered Jewish but don't have to be Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And so they have to undergo this uh, dilemma where do I want to push myself to try and be Orthodox in both faith and in terms of practice or not, right? So many of them drop out, but they have acquired an identity. Because another thing that happens in Nativ is we explain to them that uh, when you're studying Judaism, you're not just studying something for other people. You're coming back to where you come from. For instance, if you show them the movie Fiddler on a Roof, right? So there's the candlelighting scene, da-da-da-da-da-da, right? When you show uh, a class of Nativ soldiers, Nativ civilians, about 80% who come uh, or descended from the former Soviet Union, you saw them a picture of the shtetl 200 mm -hmm. years ago. And for some of them, they're going to be lighting Shabbat candles for the very first time. And you show them a movie where there's a little girl looking at her mother lighting candles. And you tell them, you see that shtetl, that old village? You know what's left of that? Not very much. Between pogroms and anti-Semitism and communism and assimilation and World War II and uh, all those things, you're all that's left. 
But when you're going to light candles for the first time, you're going back. That little girl could be your great-great-great-grandmother, and you're all that stuff. So we try and give them that feeling so that they understand when they are studying Judaism, they're returning home. And we try and give them the feeling that they are not doing something for somebody else, but they are reacquiring their own identity, their own sense of belonging, of yishtaychut. And that's what we try and do. So that slowly but surely they understand this is theirs. And what's very important for us is that they understand this in a relatively pluralistic environment, meaning that we don't tell them what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to believe. It's education, not indoctrination. Exactly, right? And they have to choose what's good for them. And so we raise very, very difficult issues. The woman in Judaism, morality of the Torah, um, science in the Torah, evolution, all kinds of things, you know. Can one believe in God after the Holocaust or after your little sister's dying of cancer? All kinds of things like that. And we raise these difficult questions. So very often, the teeth turns into a very emotional place where we try and connect them to themselves. For instance, we teach about Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, and, you know, oh, the greatest Jew who ever lived. And we, and we said, you know who he was? He was just like you. He grew up in a non-Jewish environment. He had a so-called non-Jewish mother, a non-Jewish father. He tried to come back, and he defended the Jewish people by killing the Egyptians. They still told him to go back to where he come from. And so he went to Midian, and he married a non-Jewish woman with a non-Jewish father-in-law, Jethro, Yitro. And so he finally came back and proved himself. So you see, you are Moshe, and Moshe is you. Abraham. Exactly, right. <laughs> Ruth, look, yeah. if you look at the Torah, the Bible, you'll see, especially in the book of Genesis, it goes on and on. It's all stories of conversion, right? You know, Abraham and Sarah were converts, the first Jew, right? Rebecca was a convert. Rachel and Leah were converts, okay? The wife of Joseph, Osnat, was a convert. Uh, Ruth, or Ketzipor, the wife, it goes on and on and on. So this is our story. Sinai itself was a mass conversion, right? So we try and teach them in this way so that they understand that they're connected to something that belongs to them. You put them, take them into a synagogue, and you take out the Torah, and you say, Marina, hold this Torah. And you make them stand in a half circle and say, you see what she's holding? That's yours. It's not, it doesn't just belong. You do with it what you want to do with it, but you have to understand that it's yours. So we try and bring them back to where they come from. And this really is the second stage of what we call kibbutz galuyot. So if our prophecy has always said, one day you're going to come back, right? In Yermiel Medalov, Jeremiah 31, for the land of the north, it says there, they came back. But there's something which has to be completed. So we help them complete that circle, all right? If they're informed and they have a deeper understanding, then they can make decisions. Exactly. Much more, uh, from a much wiser perspective. Exactly. But you're not interested in telling them ultimately what to decide. For we all can't. of them, they're enriched. Correct. By having a, a, a deeper sense. Just a technical question. You're saying that that process, once somebody chooses in that 30 to 40% that they're going to go through the process mm -hmm. of conversion... As educators, you're not shepherds that help them along the process. You're not social workers. We are. You're, you do. You have Your to. Your average native class is a combination of uh, teaching, social work, friendship, being a mother or a father or a brother or a sister. And this is one of the things that uh, are many, most of our native teachers are standing at. And they give a lot more than they get paid for. And they're with in contact with our civilians and soldiers during the day, during the night, during the weekends. And, and they, they help, help them deal with the very difficult problems. And just, you know, there's a lot of social work involved for the simple reason that when, if I want to convert, it's not just me. It's my family. It's no, a boyfriend it's or girlfriend. It's so complicated. It's my friends who go out to a club Friday night. It's uh, do I, how embarrassed I am to tell my, my, my uh, fellow soldiers that, I'm, that I have to convert at all. You see, this goes on and mm -hmm. on. So we help them through these things. 
And uh, for in the civilian sector, when a woman wants to convert, her husband, who's no more religious than she is at the beginning, has to also prove that he wants to be part of the religious process, which is very difficult. So at a certain point, sometimes you'll have one of these converts says to the teacher, I have to choose between my husband and between conversion. Help me. What do I do? Mm -hmm. right? Of course, we always say, your husband comes first. But nevertheless, these are the dilemmas they deal with. We have soldiers who come back to houses with no food. We have soldiers who are chayalim bodedim, who are lone soldiers, uh, both from outside the country and also from inside the country, who come from terrible homes. Mm -hmm. And uh, who have to go home every night to help their 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 sick parents or help or work. I mean, it's all endless. Night. It's endless. It's endless. It's endless. So Nativa is a place to do a lot more than teaching. And uh, when people, because what you're me, describing is the official mission, but it has to branch off into their lives. In without a sort, doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. And uh, what we try and do, uh, what I also try and tell our new teachers when I when I help to train them a little bit, is their very first educational goal in Nativ is to give a lot of love to give them the big hub. They have to understand you have come to a place where we respect you, where you don't feel we're doing you a favor, but you're doing us a favor. You are our future. And therefore, we help them understand that, that they come from a point of empowerment. They understand that they are the important parts of this story. All right? Well, that's because you're an educator. You're not a... Uh... You're, you're approaching this as an educator, we not try, as an indoctrinator. Right. Then we also saying, make sure it's a lot of fun. We yeah. make sure it's very emotional. Yeah. And we encourage our teachers to always teach... Not just with informal, fun stuff like movies and music and things like that or games, but also to share their personal stories. It's a very important part of our teaching. When you teach something, share a funny story, okay? What happened during Kiddush that's really funny? Uh, what happened in my army service that's very difficult that caused me a crisis? All kinds of things. Bring your own story, and that enables our, our, our teaching to be much more effective and much more real. And what we find, interesting enough, is many of our teachers who come to Nativa the first time a year later, you'll ask them, and they'll tell you they have learned as much from the soldiers and civilians that, 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 mm -hmm. that, as much as they have taught them. Mm -hmm. And that's really extraordinary. That's being a teacher. Right. <laughs> um, can I ask you about conversion like more broadly, how sure. it works technically here? Because mm -hmm. there is that weird thing that you know we always talk about uh, that, that the Jews are a nation, and that's why they have a state. And so the state has to function in that way. But we've survived 2,000 years. We didn't have our land. We had a language that we didn't really speak, but other than liturgically. And then, so we held on to the culture as the thing to unite us, which is the religion. Right. So even joining the nation, naturalization became a religious process. So right. now in the 21st century, we're stuck in this weird moment. Right. Well, you've described very accurately the uh, the the way the development of the conversion itself. Now, no one really knows what happened in Jewish conversion three thousand years ago. No one knows very much at all. Right? It looked like you joined. You just kind of. Well, again, it depends who you ask. And obviously, Orthodox tradition will say that uh, Tsipora, you know, the wife of Moshe, went to a Beit Din, whatever it would be, okay? <laughs> could be there, right? Could be there. Or Ruth, right? Ruth the Moabite. Wait, we don't really know. No, just based on what we um, know of the ancient Near East, you probably went with the husband. You married in. You married exactly. in. Exactly. That's what they found in uh, uh, the papyri of uh, Jewish uh, mercenary soldiers from the Persian Empire. In Elephant. as early as a, yeah, all the, yeah, um, Elephantine. Elephant Island in the Nile. And uh, they found that the laws of personal status uh, very clearly seem to indicate 
that an Egyptian woman who wanted to convert and marry one of the soldiers, the way she converted was just to get married, all right? We don't know this for sure. You also... Uh, well, it could be that the rabbinic story, that that's the way we've always done it, is historical, but it's probably their we narrative. Don't we don't know. That's probably their narrative of how right. they're framing it, but probably historically... Well, I'll give you an example for how much we don't know. You have... You know, everybody says it goes by the mother, right? right. Now, everybody will tell you it always went by the mother. Which seems could to be, be their right. right. It could be their right. But it seems to be rabbinic. But you have certain sources in the Mishnah and the Talmud which very clearly indicate that some of the rabbis went by the father, mm -hmm. right? Without even talking of the basic reading of the Bible text, which right. pretty much went by the father with everything. Um, so, you know, this is a little bit of a, a, a question. What it means to people like me is that we have to be very, very careful the way we treat anybody. And so I can be looking at someone who is considered non-Jewish, halakhically according to Orthodox law, but he might have been treated Jewish, uh, you know, many thousands of years ago. We just don't know. And so what you really have here is the return of the Jewish people. So you're saying there's a, some sort of Torah obligation to treat people well with respect and dignity? Is that what you're... There is no mitzvah that's a radical of position. love, which has been uh, uh, repeated more often in the five books of the Torah than the, the love of the converts 36 times. In one way or another, it says, hmm. right? because you yourselves are converts, and you know it's one of the things which makes the uh, Jewish text uh, of the Torah a very, very unique text for those times the treatment of the of, of the stranger, right? Now, whether you're talking about a stranger who converts according to uh, Jewish law to be a full Jew or a stranger who was a, sort of just a, a local resident who uh, identified the Jewish people didn't become Jewish, and that, that's also a non-Jewish minority also right. has to exactly, be treated exactly. with respect by, exactly. based on that. So it's so, almost as if you're saying that the Torah obligates Jews to treat uh, minorities and people who might feel uncomfortable go out of your way it to make them feel more saying. comfortable. It goes without saying, yes. Yeah. Of course, Which, the Torah also obligates us to defend ourselves, but that's obviously an ongoing mm. dilemma. Well, right. but that's not, I don't think that's what we're talking about when right. we're talking about conversion. It's right. not a question of defense. It's a question right. of working with people. So I, I can understand, and tell me if you think I'm framing this incorrectly, but I think that what you have is the, the Orthodox rabbinate feels that this 2,000-year-old process if they think it's older, that's fine. But whatever, whether that's historically accurate or not is irrelevant. It's certainly a couple of millennia-ish old. Sure. And they're saying we have to still, even though we've returned to the homeland, we've resumed, uh, we're on our way to rebuilding a normal national life with our language, with our culture. This rabbinic procedure has to be kept as is. Well, here's where we get to the the another question, another uh, differing of opinions, a major differing of opinions. Within the world of Orthodox halacha, there are different approaches as to how you should approach these people who are called Zera Yisrael, descendants of Israel, because they come from Jewish fathers, mm -hmm. they have Jewish last names, etc. Uh, is there an obligation to come towards them in conversion and to be very, very lenient in their conversion? Or should you do the opposite and try to filter them out so that only the best of the best who really, really, truly want to be Orthodox will convert? This what are the reasonings of those two sides? And well, what the are reasoning the... of those who want to be lenient is that, uh, for instance, Rabbi Uziel wrote uh, um, in the last century that uh, these are our brothers and sisters and we have to do everything we can to bring them back. Rav Shai Shuv Cohen, uh, who was the rabbi of Haifa, of, of, of blessed memory, uh, said at a conference, convert all of them now without questions and you have the rest of your lives to, to bring them back to Judaism like any other Israeli. Uh, so that approach, is the, uh, that linked approach is based on the idea that it's a type of strictness. You have to be machmir 
in regards to how Stringent. you treat these people. You have to go out of your way to be machmir to bring them back. Because that's right? the principle. The principle is we have to treat them with kindness. So then let's exactly. be let's be excessive on that end of the right. exactly. And now, the other side, right. the other the other side says that uh, we have to go according to the more strict interpretation of conversional law, which is that only people and both of them will find sources. Both mm-hmm. of these both sides, only people who really truly want to be orthodox them. And their spouses and their children will we convert them, right? And if they show us that they're not 100% serious, we will not convert them, right? And so you have this struggle going on, first of all, inside the rabbin itself. You have this struggle going on between different parts of Orthodox Jewry. Uh, what does that mean, different parts of Orthodox For instance, Jewry? you have what's more liberal and less liberal, although very often you have some Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, who are more liberal than some of the, you know, Datilumi rabbis. It doesn't rabbis. break down on the religious not Zionist versus Haredi. Not especially, no. Uh, there are Haredi rabbis who have been very uh, lenient, and there are, uh, you know, Datilumi, uh, national religious Religi- rabbis, who yeah. are extremely strict, hmm. right? And uh, add to that the, the actual process itself, in that even if you're strict— in your halakhic approach, you should be an open, smiling, caring, wonderful, warm person when the person walks into the conversion court. That does not always happen, unfortunately. And that's something that's being worked on, but there's a long way to go. So every bad situation that happens goes all over Facebook, all over Instagram, mm-hmm. and it causes many people to not want to even start this process at all. Well, you have that also because Orthodox rabbis perform weddings. You have all these horror stories of people who were yeah. treated poorly. Right. And so right. That, that's a broader... And then the nice ones get suffer for that too. What does that mean? There's the many Orthodox rabbis who do a wonderful job, yeah. but they suffer from that reputation. Uh, 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 yeah, yeah. 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 If you, if you, I'm giving you now an imaginary, I'm a genie. What steps would you want to fix it? Whether they're practical or not, what do you, what would you recommend to make conversion in Israel a more sensible, caring, um, The and conversion law, process? which was supposed to pass in this past government, was going to give authority to convert to local courts with the authority of the local rabbi. Decentralized. Okay. Exactly. Right. That law was supposed to go through. For Because of coalition politics, it was shot down. Had that happened, so you would have many local rabbis who will be lenient, right? And then you have other local rabbis who won't be lenient. And people go to conversion courts here. They'll go to conversion courts there. And that would create a much more open environment. Uh, but and, everybody would have to be respected as an official conversion. Whichever, right. Of now, those because the law to. didn't pass. So you have rabbis who are trying to do more lenient conversions. They're called Gyurka Halacha, including my rabbi, Rabbi Riskin. Uh, but because of the coalition politics and because of the law, the law says the rabbinate are the only ones who can, can determine legally whether a person will be allowed to marry somebody else. And the rabbinate is against the, the, the rabbis of the lenient rabbis Gir Kalacha. So even if Gir Kalacha, the lenient rabbis, do conversions which are lachically okay, nevertheless, they'll not be accepted to get married. So that people end up being in a limbo. Notice I'm halachically Jewish, but my children will not be considered Jewish legally, which is absurd. But that's what you have right now. Putting the technicals aside, this new conversion law you're talking about would resolve that. That's the bottom line. It would line. help to resolve it. But it wouldn't resolve it? But there are those who would say— Dude, I'm a genie. I could have given you everything. That's what you're doing? <laughs> yeah, like I look, have— You still have uh, two more wishes left. Yeah. Right. It would help to resolve it. Uh, another approach would be the more pluralistic approach, where uh, a person can get, like in America, okay, you convert Orthodox conservative reform— Whatever suits you, and you do that, right? Now, people will be opposed to that. And there are those who would say that if Israel's democracy, that's the way it's supposed to be. 
Um, as you know, there's an ongoing argument in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, most importantly, uh, what you have to have is a real acceptance of the people themselves for whoever and whatever they are. You're talking about the third wish. So, for instance, when one of these people who grew up thinking they're Jewish, who defended us thinking they're Jewish, who they keep the holidays and they love Shabbat and things like that, and uh, then they come into conversion court and they are asked, why do you want to convert? Why do you want to be a Jew? They are so offended by the question itself because mm. they say, I am a Jew, right? You don't accept me as a Jew. I still feel I'm a Jew. So uh, many of them just want to be accepted as Jews whether or not they convert halakhically. And as we know, in an, an open, liberal, democratic society, that would not be a problem. And right. I think that is the true wish of the vast majority of these olim who are considered non-Jewish halachi, they'll say, I don't want your conversion. I want you to accept me for who I am. You should not control my life. You should not make me be like you so that you'll accept me, so that everybody will accept me. That's, that's patently sort unfair Sort of going back to the, in theory, to the pre-rabbinic system of if you're joining, you're in. Again, if, if that was the pre-rabbinic right. system, right. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, anything else you think that, that our students or our listeners would want to... Did we miss anything? Do you think it's important to understand Put about it this, this way. issue? In I want to say that uh, in my work, uh, we have a lot of frustration. There's some of us who don't sleep at night because of a lot of the bad things we see happening to these converts, the way they're treated quite often. Although some of them are treated very well, others are not. Uh, uh, but through all of this, through all of the difficulty and frustration and pain, we have the privilege of, of meeting extraordinary, wonderful souls. Right, and I'll just give you a couple of examples of of, of some of our students that I've met. So, um, what I I won't mention names, especially. Uh, 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 we had a soldier who came to uh, Nativ uh, recently, and she grew up in Moldova, and uh, she had a father who who passed away from narcotic overdose, and a mother who was abusive to her, uh, both physically and emotionally. And kicked her out of the house, and she. At what to, age? She uh, something around the teenage years, I believe, maybe before. She had to live in the park while she went to school, and eventually she was able to stay at a friend's house. She connected to her Jewish identity and ended up uh, being in Israel and being in Nativ. When she moved to to uh, a city in the south, she rented an apartment, opened her apartment to all kinds of girls like herself, uh, for free, who had gone through similar things. And when wow. she came to the Nativ course, she became a sort of lighthouse for many of the other soldiers because she was such a giver to others, despite everything she had gone through, despite never having grown up with any love herself. She went into one of our Nativ Sort classes. of exactly what you were saying is the Torah's principle, that if you were mistreated, you must be the, the light. Correct. Of, Correct. She is the living embodiment Correct. of Correct. the Torah's idea. Correct. And um, uh, she came into one of our classes. Nativ, we have a unit that's called Love and Marriage, right? And in this class... Uh, they studied about um, the Jewish idea of love, which is almost mystical. The idea of uh, original souls that are that are that are that are split apart to come back together. The idea of the kruvim, right, the cherubim that were above the ark that all symbolize love, where God is in the, and that giving and respect and all those things. And uh, she was so moved by this uh, shiur, by this class, as she came to teach her afterwards. She says, "And now I know what I want." And she said, "What?" Well, said, "I want someone to break my heart." Right? <laughs> And she drew a picture of the two kruvim, mm. which I have up next to my office because it's so moving with all kinds of little uh, psukim, you know, verses. And that's an example of people who move us so much with the quality of their souls. And when you see something like that, you understand 
that what we're doing here is so important. I'll give you another example. Uh, someone who already graduated from Antifa and converted. Uh, her name is Eden. And she, uh, she grew up in Israel. But her great-grandfather was a hero of the Minsk ghetto. And he was killed in the Minsk ghetto because he owed money to people that he had paid. That that he was a he was he he was a he managed a factory. He owed money to to some of the non-Jewish workers. And although he had built himself a very nice bunker in the ghetto where nobody could find him, he walked out of the bunker so he could pay his workers. And when he walked out of the bunker, he was shot. All right, his grand his grandson Edward grew up in Minsk, fell in love with a non-Jewish woman called Olga, and they were really in love. And the parents were not happy about that. And they said, what are we going to do? Well, this is the time of the great Aliyah. I said, let's come to Israel. By going to Israel, we'll separate Edward from Olga. Mm. And they didn't tell him until the last day. And they came to Edward the day before. We're going to Israel tomorrow. Mm. He had to say goodbye to Olga. He had no choice. And uh, he came to Israel. Seven months later, he says to his parents, I'm going back to Olga. He came back to Olga. He married her. Then she told him, I do not want to separate between you and your family. I'm coming with you to Israel. Like Ruth the Moabites, who said, mm -hmm. your, your nation is my nation. She came here, right? And uh, their daughter, Eden, came to our native course and converted, right? Now, the Jewish grandmother, uh, Eden's Jewish grandmother, was very, always upset about the intermarriage, right? And the non-Jewish grandmother who came with Olga, and Olga's mother came mm. to Israel also, she was the one that helped Aiden with the conversion. She woke her up for prayers, mm. Christian grandmother, and made sure the kitchen was kosher and all those things. So this is a, a description of what's going on in the world of Nativ. And after Aiden converted, she went straight to the Kever of Rachel, Rachel's tomb, and they went straight to the Kotel, right? And then she went with her father to her father's Jewish mother's grave. And he said to her Jewish mother, you see... It all came back. Everything's okay mm. now, right? So when we hear and see stories like this, we understand that we're doing something which is very, very moving and very representative of the closing of the cycle of Jewish history, right? And so we see these things all the time, and they help us keep going. Well, I, I, you know, I'm sort of describing it from this meta position of this tension between the Jewish and Democrat. Right. But you're saying on a human level, you just cut through, you cut the Gordian knot and you exactly. just plow through exactly. it. Exactly. And, and you make people's lives richer and better. Right. And that makes your life richer and right. better. Put it this way. I have a thing up in the wall in my office that says you can't save the whole world. But you, you can't change the whole world, but you can change the world for one person. Right. right? So in Nativ, this happens all the time. Right. And we see we see what happens. And. We see how moved they are by the fact that so many people who want to help them, who love them and respect them. And we see how moved they are to come back to Judaism. I was in a class in Petah Tikva a few weeks ago uh, for our civilians, and there were two divorced mothers, uh, single mothers, who were sitting there talking about why they want to convert. And they were saying that conversion for them is not just to, to do a little like a check on a, on a, on a, on a form. For them, they really see themselves come back to where they come from. And it was very moving to see that, right? At the same time, there are many who convert because they're told that's the only way you can be accepted. And then, of course, you have many who don't convert who still feel they're part of us. So, you know, this is an ongoing process, and what we call social conversion. So, um, you know, it's a situation that's very fluid, very moving, very frustrating, but uh, a situation in which we believe that you do one thing for one person, that, that can make your whole year. Well, I wish we could do an entire podcast just called Talking to Hashi, <laughs> where we could just talk to <laughs> you every week. week. <laughs> yeah, because I have, I still have like a million more questions. And also mm -hmm. I could just listen to you all day. Oh, thanks. Well, I, I mean, I'm Hashi's neighbor. 
So you <laughs> so, could talk to him every day. <laughs> I, I, I could, but we don't really have time to do that. But I'll tell you, uh, Hashi's, uh, uh, you can see both uh, the, the wisdom and the, and the caring of Hashi, but, you know, he's literally the kind of person who would give a kidney to, to a stranger because he actually did that. <laughs> so, so like, uh, we very much, uh, appreciate your sharing your ideas. I, I would love for you to come back because Anytime. yeah, because sure. I still have so many more questions and I'm sure when Alan and Matt are back, I'm sure they're also going to want to mm -hmm. ask you a million questions. My pleasure. My pleasure. Awesome. So now Matt knows what Hashi means. Or stands for so. that was his big thing. Matt's like, I'm not going to be there. Please ask him a Hashi short for. So I got that <laughs> in first. One mystery because, solved. Now you got right. the classified information. Okay, yeah. so on tape, I yeah. took care of Matt's curiosity. <laughs> I took care of my colleague. Okay, so thank you, Rena. Come more often. <laughs> thank you so much, Hashi. Thank you for yeah. having me. And as always, thanks Ben for taking care of business and making sure this all sounds good. All right, thanks so much. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, this is the part where I remind you that we are the JU Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast. And it's also the part where I ask you to subscribe, to rate and review us, and to share and recommend us in any way you can. Also, we'd love your feedback so we can respond to you on or off the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks.